Season 7 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today for this discussion. It's wonderful to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding these episodes useful. Please take the time to subscribe, share the episodes and leave some feedback. Today I have the pleasure of sharing with you a discussion that I had with Dr. Tim O'Leary. He is a passionate teacher and a data analyst. He helps teachers and school leaders find narratives within their data. We covered a lot of ground in our discussion including how to effectively link data to a school's vision, the importance of understanding which metrics you're using and how to capture what matters most, and the power of understanding and using classroom data to drive improvement. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Uh, Dr. Tim O'Leary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Happy to be here, Matthew. Whereabouts are you phoning in from? So I am in a small suburb called Maidstone in Victoria, which yep. most people won't have heard of. Uh, it's next to Footscray. So it's yep. in, a, in, a, in a suburban. We are eight kilometres from the CBD. So it's probably like the equivalent of, I don't know, Marrickville up in Sydney. Fantastic. Great. Um, and what's, what's the weather like down there today? It, it's sunny outside today. It's awesome. sunny but cold. Rare treat for Melbourne, bit of sunshine. Yes. Nice. Uh, quite possibly the most important question uh, for our discussion, what's your coffee order when I can finally buy your coffee? Uh, so my coffee is an um, an almond latte. Okay. It's a bit la da but... That's okay. There's no joke we Well, as we were talking about before, I'm into my fitness and my health and fitness, and I, I love a coffee, but an almond latte has less calories. How bad is that? Fantastic. Uh, is there a book uh, that has made you stop and reconsider things? Oh. You know, the, the, the book, it's a book that I did after I did a course. Um, and I did this back in 2020. Um, I did a course on Coursera on self-determination theory. So it's a specialization mm -hmm. across four sections. And I, I loved it so much that I went and bought the textbook. I'm not saying you should do that. Um, okay. but, and I'm not saying anyone should do it. I'm just looking for the book. It's called, um, self-determination theory. It's, it's by Ryan and Dietschy. It's the, the textbook. And I read the whole textbook and it kind of didn't blow my mind, but it really put a whole bunch of stuff into context for me right. about everything. So everything I experienced as a teacher, as a, as a leader. And then I, I experienced in terms of, um, you know, poor leadership, I suppose, yeah. an understanding of this whole idea of motivation and sort of then for me linking that back to what that means yeah. for us as, as leaders and leaders of learning. Fantastic. Um, if you could have a dinner party with anybody, uh, obviously your family gets a free seat at the table, uh, but who, uh, who would be there? Oh, you know, that's a tough question. Um, the thing is, I kind of get to catch up with my heroes. 
So I get to have coffee with John Hattie every now and then. And, and through him, I've met people like, you know, Jenny Donahoe and Peter DeWitt. And these are kind of, for me, the big names in sort of educational thinking, at least that come out of the US and the things that I'm passionate about. But, um, you know, I'm boring. I get to catch up with the people that I want to. I catch up with, you know, the, the, the friends and mentors in my life that have had an influence. Like, I'm not really... Yeah, that's fine. I mean, yeah. if you... Uh... If you're privileged enough to get to hang out with your heroes uh, for coffee, that's great. You don't yeah, like, you know, it's, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm going to put that one. I'm going to park that one at the back. And I might, I might can, come uh, back later on. We can loop back later if we have time. Um, yep. What was your uh, upbringing like and what are you most grateful for from your parents? Okay, so I, you know, I'm probably, I don't know, like, you know, middle-class family, born in Adelaide, um, moved to Perth. Yep. Spent some time in Perth, came across to Melbourne. Um, and, you know, I've spent probably the best part of 30, 35 years here now. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, in terms of what I'm grateful for for my parents, I think it's the opportunity yeah. um, and the support, I guess. Along the way, you know, they looked for ways to, um, you know, give me the, uh, the opportunities to, to try different things that I, I want. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of support, you know, they were... Um, you know, the whole way through, if I've had to move out and then back into home for illness or for, for whatever reason that they've been there and they were very encouraging. Um, some might say uh, over encouraging sometimes, yeah. but the thing is it, it, it kind of, it's, um, it's been the, it's been kind of what I needed. And I, I guess, as I think that we all do, you know, now that I'm a parent, we, we look at what our parents were and how they were with us. And we look at the bits that we like, and we look at the bits that we go, maybe we didn't mm-hmm. like. So they've shown me how to be both in good ways and in bad ways. Well, not bad ways, but in, in, in ways that I can improve, if that makes sense. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so uh, take me back to the beginning. Why did you originally get into teaching? How did you get to be where you are today? So teaching, you know, I, so for me, and this, this comes back from a conversation I had with a, a friend many years ago, and, and he talked about this idea of career. And the thing is, and he said, you know, the word career has two different meanings. You know, it, it can mean, you know, the, the, I suppose, the vocation or employment path that you're on, but it can also mean to be out of control. Yeah. If you're careering down the road, you don't quite know where you're going. Yeah. Um, so for me, my career has been a bit of a mix of both. So I um, went to Melbourne Uni uh, for my undergrad. I studied geomatic engineering, which is a, the fancy name for land surveying um, and cartography and a science degree. And I, I loved it. Made, met some great friends, really enjoyed what I, I learned. But it wasn't for me as a career. So um, when we were finishing up, I attended a uh, like a you know a graduate expo, whatever it was, and um, the opportunity arose to go and do some consulting work for PricewaterhouseCoopers. So I actually began my career as a as a IT analyst, uh, which was again really heaps of fun. I like problem solving, like critical thinking. Um, but after two years of that, what I realised was I'm working for a big company, help other big companies make money. It didn't really feel as though I was contributing, sort of back if that makes sense yeah. I was just generating money um, and I kind of looked at what I wanted to do like I, at that point in time I was training lots of martial arts and I wanted to travel and all that sort of stuff um, so I kind of you know looked at you know what I suppose what I wanted from a lifestyle perspective but work and you know when I was thinking and thinking back in my time I really had enjoyed the tutoring I'd done at university both for you know so it's high school students but also for first second and third year university students yeah kind of opened up the idea that, you know, maybe teaching was for me. So I applied to get into my, at that point in time, graduate diploma of education, and I got in and I did my nine month um, learners, you know, learning permit to become a teacher and then 
you know, that was back in 2022 and I've been teaching ever since. Fantastic. And what was your, um, what was your experience at school like? Was there a teacher that had a, um, a positive or negative impact in your life? Yeah, look, I, absolutely. I think, you know, we all have those, don't we? Um, I, if I think back over my life, I can think of, you know, teachers like Mrs. Bellamy, who was my humanities teacher across three years. I can think about, um, you know, some of the maths teachers. I was a maths teacher that really kind of irritated me along the way. Yeah, uh, I had one of those. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I am a maths teacher and I think, and I can say this because I was one, is we can be strange sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we certainly love our material, but I think that sometimes we can be a bit old school in terms of the way we think about yeah. our jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no offence, sorry, no offence to any maths teachers there. No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I was interviewing um, uh, Eddie Wu a little while ago and we we're talking about this, this idea that, um, I mean, I hated maths at school. I absolutely hated it. And I'm convinced my teacher hated it as well, um, but he was still teaching it. And I was told that the uh, answers were in the back of the book and not to look. And I was never really told why we were doing the subject. And it wasn't yeah. until I got to university um, and there was a, a professor called um, Catherine Attard that really changed the game for me. And I thought, where was this subject when I was at high school? And so I think for me, by far, maths is... Uh, now my favourite subject to teach young kids and to see them um, approach it with awe and wonder is, is, is really beautiful. And it's actually a really useful subject. I don't, like I said, I don't know why I wasn't made aware of this in high school. But it's actually well, yeah, look, uh, yeah. There are lots of reasons. I think sometimes, you know, we have negative experiences early on. Yeah. And maths is one of those subjects where it truly is incremental. And the way that curriculum is constructed and the way that teaching and learning hangs off that curriculum it means yeah. that once you've missed a uh, you know I think about maths is built like building a brick wall once you miss a, miss a layer or miss elements of a layer it makes the next layer much more complicated yeah. and it's because we march through and we don't take time to you know address where students are at along the way but you know there's a whole bunch of pressures yeah um associated with that yeah absolutely and so um, obviously, your uh, current work is focused on um, predominantly data and measurement uh, in schools. And, and how did you go from uh, being a, a teacher to deciding to make that career step and moving into more of that, that space? Well, I would, uh, it wasn't so much a step. It was always kind of there. So, you know, Lansavang and, and computer programming and data management, it's all about data. It's all yeah. about, you know, collecting, measuring. You know, I mean, essentially, Lansavang is measurement. It's measurement science. Yeah. So this idea of you know, measuring things and, and tracking things, I guess, has always been compelling. Um, yeah. But for me, the, probably the real pivot began in 2007. Um, you may or may not remember back in, two, I don't know when it was, 2006, 2007, the federal government at the time offered these, you know, summer schools for teachers. They were trying to get teachers in to do more professional learning. So it only happened once because there was a change in government. But I, along with 200 other maths teachers, attended a conference in Armidale, New South Wales yeah. for, for 10 days. Um, where we got to listen to some of the best, you know, theory and research that was out and about at that point in time. And it was at that conference that I saw, you know, John Hattie speak for the first time. So he got up and he talked about a book that was about to be coming out. And he talked about what he'd seen in that book. And for me, it was like, boom. Wow. Like, why aren't we thinking about these things, you know, more broadly? Yeah. Uh, and that for me was the real pivot. I came back from that going, right, how do I get the, well, it wasn't the NAPLAN data at that point in time. How do I get the AIM data? How do I get access to some PAP data? How do, you know, how do I get these things and how do I conceptualize, you know, how do I get access to these things and how can I begin thinking about how I might do that in, in the classroom and at my school? 
Yeah. So what are some of the things that you think that schools um, get wrong with data? Because I think I'm talking from a New South Wales context and I sadly went down to to Melbourne to do my master's, but my teaching experience is predominantly in New South Wales. And we seem to be pretty obsessed with measuring things. Um, But I mean, you could argue that it's not always effective, but we seem to be always collecting data. But what do you think we seem to get wrong well, I mean, there's a few things here. One is, you know, one of the key things for me is it's not about the data, it's what you do with it that, that yeah. matters. So yes, data is important, but I think we have this fixation on getting data mm. um, and then looking at it, but, but you know, but that doesn't necessarily lead to, you know, actions. It's what what happens as a consequence of engaging with the data. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's, there's a lot of things and I've spoken about this a few times this year. For, for, I think that we have this challenge that, you know, data is seen as a panacea for the, the woes and the problems that sit within education. And, yeah. and I don't, do not doubt that, da- that data can be helpful, um, but we need, to, um, we need to do a better job of linking it in with, say, our school visions and, mm. and the practices and processes within our schools. I would argue that, um, you know, at least in the schools I've worked in, there's not a clear connection between the vision and the data that's being looked at. A lot of schools, and I work with in, have worked within independent schools for most of my career, have beautiful visions, that are full of, you know, what Don Watson calls weasel words. They're, they're not measurable. They're, they're really intangible and they sound wonderful. The marketers love them. Parents love them. But the thing is, it, you know, w- what does it mean and, and how can a school hang their hat on it? So NAPLAN often doesn't link to some of these things. I think that we need to have a lot more clarity and transparency in terms of what our goals are and visions and for schools so that we can then begin to link what the vision is to the way we're using data in the classroom. Yeah. Along the way, that means, you know, having a vision, understanding what you're measuring for it, understanding what metrics you need to be looking at, yeah. understanding what your baseline is. Now, we haven't even got to teachers using data yet. Once yeah. you know what your baseline is, identifying what you need to focus on. And once you've decided to focus on then going, right, what initiatives do we need to put into place? I think that often we leap to initiatives first. We, we, don't, we don't get to the you know, we don't spend enough time thinking about the why of data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have the ATSL professional teaching standards. We've got, you know, the ACRs N or National School uh, Tool for School Improvement. And they all reference data and they talk about, you know, literacy and numeracy data. So, you know, by stealth, they're talking about NAFLAN or the ACR PAT testing, or, you know, they're talking about wellbeing, which, you know, now that we've had the pandemic is this plethora of, you know, pulse checkers that are out there. But they also, I think, don't sort of... Um, privilege that a lot of the data that teachers are already using and already have access to in the classroom. I think that there is, you know, when we talk data, we think NAPLAN. Mm-hmm. We don't think about the formative assessment data and responsive teaching data that we're, we're in, interacting with every day. We don't think the observational data um, as our kids walk into the class and we're looking at their body language, we, you know, we're not thinking yeah. about the mini whiteboards that we're using. I, so I think that there is this, this, this perception reality gap when it comes to data. So do you think that um, in schools we... Uh, our curriculum is kind of over-prescribed and do you think that that teachers there needs to be a little, a little bit more trust for teachers to be able to do their jobs well i guess that's a double-edged sword really isn't it um, yeah. i think that to do our jobs properly there's too much curriculum yeah um and there does need to be um a lot more autonomy for schools to meet the needs of the students that they're working with um but you know that, that's really easy to say I, but I, I, on the flip side, I don't think it hurts to have something aspirational that we're all looking to achieve. Like I'm reading a book at the moment on, you know, on a, a particular methodology that's that, that's talking about um, 
you know, I suppose setting appropriately high standards for all students so that they can all hit grade level effectively. So it's a book out of the US. And I think, you know, I think it's really important to have high expectations for students, but, but you know, coming out of Melbourne Uni and having done work with Patrick Griffin, I also like to be pragmatic about that and sit down and go, well, if we know that we have a six year spread for the students in our class, and we're teaching a year nine cohort of math students, and we know some of them are already beyond this curriculum and some of them are so far behind that they've, they've got almost no chance of catching up. I still don't think it's sufficient to just set appropriately high standards at grade level. We need to be setting appropriately high standards in terms of the growth those children are going to experience, if that makes sense. Um, now, I I'm not answering your question. I've segued there. But I think that, you know, I think alongside the fact that there needs to be greater autonomy um, for teachers, and I think that there needs to be greater capacity built in terms of some things, because, you know, teaching is, an, is a, a profession with a diverse range of, um, what do you call it, um, you know, with practitioners with a diverse range of experience and, you know, what we know about education has changed and what we know about education and what works in education has changed. So I think that sometimes we need to spend time, you know, recapacity building some of the practitioners, if that makes sense. I mean, we expect the same and, you know, people say this all the time. We expect the same in other professions. We expect the same in medicine. We expect, you know, my wife's a lawyer. She has to do CPD every year. We, you know, the, the, the same is true in a lot of professions. So I think that, you know, and no one likes that. No one likes having to do CPD, it's, it probably feels like a bit of a time waster, but I think it, it, it's, it's important to be exposed to new ideas and have opportunities to um, engage in those sort of new ideas and practices. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm, I'm just wondering, um, Tim, what are some of the things that, that great schools do in terms of how to collect data? What are some of the systems in, in, in place that you've seen that um, uh, some of the consistent things that really great schools do? Look, I think it's about creating time. It's just like everything in schools, isn't it? It's about time. It, it's not something that we do. It's something where time needs to be allocated to it. So I think that, um, you know, to be using data effectively within a school, there needs to be, I suppose, you know, well, for me, there needs to be that why. There needs to be that compelling why as to why we're we're looking at the data what are we hoping will happen as a consequence of looking at the data and once that is kind of clear and there's kind of a shared narrative around that it's then about having you know simple ways of collecting and aggregating the data it's a bit boring but it's like you know if you want to bring your NAPLAN and your PAT data together with your internal data how do you um, what systems do you have to, to bring it together so people aren't playing in spreadsheets um, you know that's what I used to do 10 years ago I was the person on the spreadsheets doing it, it was heaps of fun but it's not very you know not a very good use of a teacher's salary um, and there needs to be, I suppose, um, you know, professional development around what the data means, what it doesn't mean, how it can be used, and then time for the teams together to work in, you know, whatever you want to call them, professional learning communities, you know, teacher learning communities, it doesn't matter, you know, year level teams to actually come together, look at the data, unpack what it means, and engage in that sort of, you know, active inquiry. And I think until we... Um, you know, until we actually make provision for that, until we make provision for teachers to have that time, I think it's very difficult for it to have a, a really sort of big impact. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's so important. I mean, time is one of those things which is an incredibly valuable resource uh, in schools. And um, how would you suggest that we go about building that data literacy um, as educators, that ability to sort of understand how to use data more meaningful, meaningfully in our classrooms? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because again, you know, you, you kind of don't want to put all your teachers into one room at the one time and tell them because there's a diverse range of points of readiness in terms of that journey. 
But what I've done for one school that I'm working with is I've sat down with them. I've, I've helped them to design their um, analytics for teaching and learning package. So this is a high fee paying independent school. Um, and I, you know, I have a history with them and I'm working with, an, with the school and with the third party that's building it, the, the analytics package. And alongside that, I've built a, uh, an internal bespoke data literacy micro-credential for, for teachers at the school. It's not very long, it's about an hour and a half, but it's really just about introducing them to uh, some of the key concepts, key ideas of what the data is, what it means, what it, what, what it can be used for, what it can't be used for. And that, that's been made available to the, the teachers. And what we've tried to do as well though, is um, we've tried to cascade the leadership of that down. So it's not, you know, it's, and what I mean by that is it's about working with the principal, working with the heads of campus, working with the heads of school to understand what's there, what, what, what it can be used for. So they're aware of it. And so when they're talking with their teams, they're re referencing it and then supporting that mid-level. So the heads of faculty or heads of learning or, or whatever they're called in your school um, to lead their teams. Because you know, the thing is things don't work in schools without support from leadership. You can't just go, right, everyone, use data. You've got to sit down and say, what do we mean by data? You know, where does the data come from? Um, how, and how might it support you? And, and then again, it's, it's about providing the time. I don't think, at least with the schools that I'm working with at the moment, it's, it's a one-year journey. I think it's a three to five-year journey. And that's one of the, it's probably, to be honest, it's probably longer than three to five years. But, but I think that's one of the things that we, we miss in schools. Like often we move from initiative to initiative every year because there's a new priority or the department said we need to do this or someone's seen a particular uh, academic at a conference and they've gone, this is, the, you know, this is the, the best thing we could be working on. When in fact, kind of just like our governments, we kind of want them to sit down and go, this is what the long game is. You know, this is what we're working on and we're gonna allocate a significant amount of time to it. I think that's so important. I mean, you, you've talked obviously so much about the importance of having time and also space. And I think some of these things take a lot of time to uh, to initiate. And um, Tim, for those people that um, are not aware, what are some of the different types of data sets? I mean, we talk a lot in schools about sort of formative and summative data. And, and, and what are some of the advantages of collecting different types of these data sets um, within our classrooms? And how do we sort of do it practically? Well, it's kind of interesting because so when I began my data journey back in 2007, for me, and maybe this speaks to you know the learning area and what I'd studied previously, I was really kind of fascinated buying into the standardised assessment data because it's more you know more reliable, and depending on who you speak with, arguably you know more valid. Um, but you know along the way, I kind of softened my stance on some of those things, and in fact, you know when I did my postgraduate work. It was, it was kind of in the area of validity theory. And if, if this idea of what it means for an assessment to be valid kind of changed in the late 80s, early 90s. So, you know, prior to that time when the theorists talked about a, a test, so NAPLAN, for example, being valid, it was, does the test measure what it says that it will measure? Um, and, and those sorts of things. And what happened over time is that really it, it moved towards are the scores from the test appropriate for the sorts of uses that people are putting them to. So even now, when you look at certain testing websites and you speak with teachers, people go, oh no, a test is valid if it measures what it says it will. And like I said, it's an outdated way of thinking about it. And, and what I mean by um, is it it's you know appropriate is, is it appropriate to use HSC scores or VCE scores or ATARs to measure the effectiveness of a school? And, and the answer to that will be, well, no. <laughs> that's not what the school was designed for. Now it's been designed for particular things and I'm, I'm not an advocate either way. 
but but the people that have designed it will argue that it's you know it's it's valid for what they want to use it for. The same with NAPLAN. NAPLAN was never really designed to provide um, accurate data at the student level. You just wouldn't trust it. You you wouldn't. It's just it, 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 you know if you look at some of Margaret Wu's stuff out of Melbourne Uni, this is from several years ago. It's got a margin of error of about plus or minus twelve percent, and that's the nature of the test at the class level. But once you start looking at the school level and the sector level, you start to get a bit more of a sense. It's much more valid at that level. The challenge that we have is that a lot of these scores, they start with one intended use, and then they end up being used by other people for, for things that are inappropriate. And, and it becomes invalid, if that makes sense. So anyway, I began my journey in standardized assessment, and I still love it. But it, I, I kind of drifted to you know, begin to appreciate the other forms of data that we have access to. And I kind of referenced earlier, I'm much more interested in, you know, classroom level data now. So I'm running some sessions for Independent Schools Victoria called, um, you know, Understanding and Using Classroom Data. And, you know, NAPLAN and PAT forms are part of that. But for me, if we want to have an impact on students and learning, the classroom is where it happens. You know, when you look at NAPLAN, it's too late. When you look at VC and, and HSC results, it's too late. Um, and, and you know, those sorts of results are used to make systemic or you know, school-based policy decisions. They're not, they can't influence the classroom. So I'm much more interested in the messy data that happens in the classroom. Mm. So whether it's the, you, know, you referenced formative before. Yeah. So what, what sorts of formative data are we using? And again, that doesn't need to be, you know, it, it might be a test score. It might be a test that's been designed and delivered according to Patrick Griffin's approach to assessment for teaching with a, you know, a rich developmental rubric, which I, I think, to be honest, that's what all of our assessments should be, but that, that's a massive change that needs to happen. Um, but like it might be the observational data, it might be it might be exit tickets, it might be mini whiteboards, it might be just the conversations you're having with kids or overhearing from kids in the classroom um, to, to to get a sense for where they are and then adapting to it and responding to it. The key thing here is responding mm. uh, um, to to then to the needs of students. Yeah. So why do you think then we we tend and this is a generalisation of course, but why do you think schools then tend to lean towards that um, uh, summative data assessments, those sort of broader um, uh, NAPLAN PAD assessments when sort of it needs to be a combination of both. Why do, why do we kind of lean the other way then if we know it's not particularly effective? Because they're publicly available and they're the, the, you know, whilst we don't have league tables in this country, we have league tables in this country. You know, the, the data is made available and then the, you know, the newspapers go to town on it. We've got websites like Better Education that scrape the various locations and put all this data up. And it's a lot harder. So, so yeah. So, one, I think it's easy. It's easy to fixate and focus on these things. Um, you know, it's really easy to see that your ranking has gone up in the better education rankings from 50th to 20th or, or whatever it is, without looking at what the data is. Um, but also because it's a lot more complicated to focus on, say, you know, growth measures, if that makes sense. Now, again, just looking at where we're just focused on, you know, um, summative measures at the moment. Within the HSC, within the VC, within NAPLAN, you know, there are these built-in, you know, growth metrics or, you know, value-add metrics. But if you, it's a lot more harder to explain to people what they mean. And, and you don't want to be the school that pulls the trigger on putting your, your, your value-add data out there. Because if this year, like, you know, you've got, you've got the top value add, like, it just means the school down the road is going to be publishing theirs next year. And yeah. I, don't, I think that that's, that's counterproductive anyway. Like, yeah. I think that um, it, 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 would, it would just be, it would be an arms race for, for kids 
being dropped out of schools. And it's, I suppose to answer your question, it's just hard. It's yeah. much easier to focus on these key measures because that's what the departments are focusing on. That, you know, this funding, well, I don't suppose there's funding, but yeah. there's difficult conversations that are had about NAPLAN and PAT and, yeah. and, and, and HSC that, so that schools fixate on them because, you know, yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's easier to measure something like your, your PAD or your um, or NAPLAN or your uh, or, the, or the Victorian equivalent because it it's just easier to see growth. But of course, that only measures a very um, specific component of a school system. I mean, I was told when I was at school that nothing really mattered until year twelve, which I think is absolutely terrible um, advice um, because it's like and, and for me um, it's really uh, sort of got me thinking about how we measure the things that are really important and and for the teachers that are listening um, to this podcast what are some things that we can do practically in our classrooms to help measure and to help capture what matters most in terms of data of our students I mean you mentioned um, mini whiteboards one of the things that I do is I take photos of mini whiteboards all of the time to show um, uh, um, progress. I also have exit slips. I set student learning goals. I have um, uh, QR codes linked to Google Forms where students can tell me if I've been a good teacher or listen to them. Um, we do wellbeing check-ins, but what are some other things that we can do to capture some of those things that are less concrete in the classroom? I think you've kind of just highlighted a few good ones there, to be honest. Like, I mean, for me, the first thing is, you know, you, you, you've got to have a good sense of what it is you're trying to teach. So you've got to have a good intention of what the learning goals are. You need to Absolutely. actually be able to articulate those as learning intentions and success criteria for students. So without having a, a you know, um, and this is essentially, I'm channeling Dylan William and, and yeah. Harry Fletcher Wood there. Um, you know, so you need to, you, you need to know what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, and then you need to be providing opportunities for your students to, to, you know, demonstrate mastery, whether that be, as you've said, you know, mini whiteboards throughout a class, whether it be exit tickets, entry tickets, whether it be, you know, group discussions, um, where you know someone's building a, a mind map or a, a brainstorm on the class, and you're looking for ideas that students know. I like the idea of you know um, journaling over time, and you, you know you referenced before with the mini whiteboards, taking photos over time. So looking for that that change in terms of student understanding or manifestation of their understanding, I think that's really powerful. Um, I'm a massive fan of student perceptions of teaching surveys, like, and that, so um, for gaining insights into the experience students are having in the class and how those experiences are changing. Um, but yeah, like I think that, you know, I mean, there's so many different things yeah. you can do, but I think that the first thing is, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. Um, what, what are your success criteria? And then, and this is probably, well, it's not more complicated or more work, but I really am a massive fan of Patrick Griffin's work on assessment for teaching. So, yeah. you know, alongside of what do you want to do, how are you knowing how you're going to assess them? So you've got a, a rubric, that isn't just for a task, it might be for a unit of work. Yep. So that you're actually, you know, identifying where students need to be and you're sharing yep. that with your students so they can self-assess, that they can peer assess. Yep. And then you're, you know, you're kind of monitoring where they are in terms of that room yeah. as they progress. Absolutely. I mean, we use pretty extensively, we use sort of Seesaw and Google Classroom and all these different ways to break down the sort of perceived barriers between home and school. We set what we call waggles, so what a good one looks like on the whiteboard and we on the smart board, and we share that amongst all of our yep. stages. And and also one of the things that I've been trialing in my class is uh, obviously sort of writing rubrics, but student written writing rubrics, so that yep. they're in the vocabulary of students. Um, and that's been really wonderful because when a student comes to me and says I've finished, 
we can then go back to the success criteria and say, well, have you done, very simply, have you included a capital letter, a full stop, an adverb, or whatever that may be. Um, mm -hmm. But we found um, uh, even like a platform like um, Seesaw is incredibly valuable. Uh, I know there's other platforms similar, but we get students to record their learning and upload videos, and then that yep. creates a portfolio of work yep. Which then gets sent home, and so I, I guess there probably needs to be a shift in um, uh, sort of what constitutes good assessment and what is important. And and one of the things that I'm trying to take my teachers through is um, an understanding with them that they're that a great work sample is a, is an amazing piece of an assessment. A student mm -hmm. feedback survey is a great use of assessment. I mean, we've just started trialing, as I mentioned, QR codes linked to Google Forms where teach where um students rate how much they enjoyed the lesson from one to 10 and also if they learned anything can can i be honest after a student's been in trouble their feedback is pretty brutal uh but it's also yeah really interesting so we've been trying to capture some of those um i guess softer data points or less measurable data points i think it's the i mean one thing i will say this is everything's measurable you just yeah. need to sit down and put the time you know you need to identify what it is you're trying to measure now it's not necessarily measurable in the same way you know, it might be around perceptions, measurement and tracking, but that's fine. I mean, you know, end of year schools always do surveys, you know, uh, uh, you know, stakeholder engagement surveys, parent engagement surveys. I think they're really powerful things because to be honest, I, I kind of see them as proxy anyway. So, you know, schools, you know, independent school, you know, faith-based school, state-based school, we all have kind of the same goal and that is to improve outcomes for students. Yeah. Now, we might look at it through different lenses. It might be academic outcomes. It might be growth. It might be pathways. It might be well-being. You know, it, every school will have its own take on that, and that's fine. But the thing is, all of those things are measurable yeah. in, in a way. It's about deciding how you want to measure it for your school, what's important for your school, and then what, what tools you're going to use to measure it, then acting on that data to do something. Yeah. Um, but, but in terms of, say, you know, you referenced, because I referenced, I think, the idea of student perception surveys. Yeah. I think they're really powerful because it's about a student's experience of the process. Yeah. And the thing is, it's that process in the classroom that is what's going to impact on their learning. Yeah. So without understanding how students are experiencing that, but not only how they're experiencing it, like a lot of tools out there you know, from around the world focus on so, you know, average scores. So if I look at, say, the, um, what do you call it, the tripod survey from the US, you know, they'll give you an average score on their seven Cs. You know, that's great. That's what the average is. But the average introduces the fact that there is variation in the classroom. So right. I've yeah. worked with some some teachers to look at data from surveys where you're not just looking at what the average is, but the variation. And what you find yeah. is that in, in my class, for example, some kids, you know, really, and I'm going to be very um, simplistic about this, are really having a great time in terms of their learning, but some kids are not having a great time. And it's not just that average score that's important. It's the variation in scores that's important. Yeah. Because, you know, we want to make sure as teachers, you know, we are the adults in the room. We're the ones that are getting paid whatever the pay scale dictates we're getting paid. You know, the kids aren't getting paid to be there. So we should be looking at some of this evidence for what's going on in the classroom and adapting what we do accordingly. Yeah. Um, that's, I think that's so important. And that there's so much in there um, that we can unpack it. And just as, but as we begin to um, kind of wrap up, because I do want to be respectful of your time, I did just want to ask you about, um, I mean, in New South Wales, we predominantly measure sort of A to E in terms of all of our key learning areas. Um, do you think that is a good way to measure student um, student success, or what are some of the the problems with that, or some of the benefits? Or... Well, look, I mean, my question will be: What does an A mean? What does an A yeah. mean? What does a B mean? So, the thing is, none of those things, like unless they're linked to something, unless they're linked again, and unless the A means something in terms of curriculum. 
So unless a B means something, a C means something. So if I, again, drawing on Patrick's yeah. work, Patrick's work is about building these, you know, rich assessment rubrics where yes, you know, there are levels. He reverses his lettering um, because it's, you know, about progression. And unless that A means something. So imagine, so you're, you've picked up a group of kids and you're in year nine. It's the beginning of the year, you're brand new to the school. And, you know, you've got a good data system in place, maybe. Um, and you can look at the class and go, these are the kids that got A's, these are the B's, these are the C's, these are the D's, these are the E's. What does that tell you? Yeah. Unless it's telling you something that's linked to what the kid's zone of proximal development is, mm -hmm. it's kind of meaningless. And it's kind of a hangover from how we all went to school and then how our parents went to school and how their parents went to school. It's like percentages. I think yeah. that these things, percentage doesn't tell you anything other than that on that particular piece of assessment, a student got this percentage of scores right and this yeah. percentage of scores wrong. So I think that, you know, I'm not a, a massive fan. I understand why schools do them. Like you can't just change them yeah. because, you know, without a, a massive amount of re-education. But like I said, I, I, you need to link it to a, a rubric. It, it needs to have, a, it needs to be meaningful. I think back to what I said before. About yeah, yeah, rubric. absolutely. It's like, how valid is an A? Yeah. Um, it, if you know, yeah. really, like, unless unless you know, it has some sort of meaning that we can transition into use. Yeah, it's it's not very useful. Well, well, I found sort of from my experience that it sort of raises more questions than than answers. Um, and so a lot of parents, I mean, a C is sort of considered in New South Wales, kind of exactly where you need to be. But I mean, it doesn't sound very good, does it? Um, no. And I think especially, no. I mean, it sounds as if an A is probably a good place to be. And so, like, I think. Um, for me, it causes a lot of confusion. I mean, um, but I love your idea of actually deciding, uh, obviously, what the purpose of the data is and how to use it. it. Has to be useful, and it has to you have to then use it to inform something. Like, there's no point in just measuring something and then moving on. So, for me, for example, going back to this well-being data, um, I found out that that seventy-five percent of my students really enjoyed a maths lesson. Um, um, which is great, but 25% didn't. So we had to start to think about, okay, how are we going to make sure that more students are engaged? Yeah. And we did a perception survey where, where kids would, um, I said, um, do, you, uh, do you see yourself as a mathematician? And 13% of our students said they did. And obviously sort of 87% did not. And so we really wanted to shift that perspective and being able to uh, measure before and after and then talk about what it means to be someone to engaged in maths was really wonderful. But my point to that very long story is you actually need to do something with the data, otherwise it's just meaningful. Which, mean, which comes back to the questions you ask. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've, I do lots of survey design with, within four schools. Yeah. And you could, for me, you know, it's, it's about the questions you ask and if, if it's going to yield actionable information. Uh, because the thing is, if it's not going to yield actionable information, it's, it's not worth doing. Like schools are busy, teachers are busy. It's hard to run surveys. It takes time. Um, it, you know, I'd rather use no data than, than, than collect data that's not going to be very meaningful, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, just sort of in closing, Tim, what, what are some of the lessons that you think that we have learned through the sort of ongoing, ongoing COVID-19 pandemic about how schools operate and how we measure kind of success uh, at the school level? So like the, not a hard question to answer. Um, I think what, you know, the, at least at, at the end of the first round of lockdowns, I mean, this has been going on for so long now, hasn't it? Yeah. We kind of learned that um, there wasn't that much learning loss. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I haven't read anything in the, in the last 12 months sort of around that. But I think what we've learned is that school can operate differently. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we've learned that it, 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 we don't need to have the full days that we've had before. I yeah, and then when you compare us to other countries as well, we have some of the longest school days, the longest school years. Yeah. Um, 
as compared to schools in the OECD. So I think that we've learned that, um, you know, our approach to school can be different. Uh, I think, you know, what it's brought to the fore is, you know, wellbeing is important. Although, but, you know, what we've also seen is, like I said, is this plethora of, you know, pulse checks that are out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, I'd be curious to see over time the impact that they're having on, on wellbeing within the schools, if that makes yeah. sense. Because I think it's critically important to measure the data, but we just need to make sure that we're acting based on it. Yeah, and actually really that as schools, we're not, you know, we're changing. So if we're going to collect some of this data, and sometimes I think the wellbeing data we collect is less wellbeing and more readiness to learn on a day-by-day -day basis. Mm. So if you're taking a pulse check daily, I don't know if it's wellbeing or more about giving you a set of the mind frame of the teach students as they come in so yeah. you can adapt as needed. Um, yeah. But I, I think that we've also learned... No, like, I think that's it. I think that, I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, I, in the background of all this, we've also got the discussion around ATAR and, and so forth and learning profiles and that are going on. And, and I think that there is this sort of ongoing conversation that we need to get better at measuring things that are mm. uh, um, yeah. not more meaningful, but uh, equally meaningful and per perhaps, you know, maybe more relevant. So I think that, you know, there's that kind of conversation happening as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you answered that question wonderfully, considering it was such a, a broad, a broad question. So thank you. Um, just in closing, um, Tim, what mark uh, do you hope to leave in this data space with your work? Uh, oh, Look, I mean, to be honest, I'll be happy if, so, you know, when I, when I engage with schools and when I engage with people, you know, my goal is to, to not build ongoing work for myself. Uh, I want to leave people with you know very quickly um feeling confident and capable to think about data differently um and to be honest like in three four or five years time i'd like there to be you know many many many, many more people out there that have got a, a much bigger and greater skill set than i do that i've helped to inform and sort of encourage in that direction so you know I, essentially the you know if i can encourage schools and people to think about like i said doing data differently and to think more mm -hmm. broadly about purpose before they jump into the data, that would be awesome. If I can support schools to think about how they can transition from some of their, you know, I do some work around developmental approaches to teaching and learning to actually build more effective assessments that have greater levels of meaning, then I will be really sort of pleased. And if I encourage people to thinking be, to be thinking about their, um, their use of student perceptions of teaching data, then I'll be happy as well. Amazing. Well, I think you're uh, well on track uh, to doing that. Uh, so thank you so much for your, um, amazing work in this space. And, and finally, where can people find out more about you and stay in touch with your amazing work? So I'm on LinkedIn um, at the moment. So if you Google, mm -hmm. oh, actually, I was about to say, if you Google Tim O'Leary, you know, you'll find me, but you'll find about a thousand of me. Well, I can um, put all of this stuff in the show notes as yeah. well so people can get in touch. But so LinkedIn is the best place to stay yeah, in touch. Yeah, look, LinkedIn, uh, I, my, my business's name is educationaldatatalks.com. You can Google my book, Classroom Vibe, Tim O'Leary. You'll, you'll pick that up. But yeah, LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Fantastic. Well, uh, Dr. Tim O'Leary, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I, um, I, I'm so grateful that you would, uh, they would have a chat. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Thank you very much.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.